Thank you, Bill. Two weeks ago, Lewis brought us to a moment when Jesus was in Capernaum. He was teaching, he was healing, he was casting out demons. Family members were lining up with their loved ones, desperately wanting them to be healed. And then all of a sudden, Jesus left town. I'm sure there were many that were very deeply disappointed, maybe even possibly resentful. But Jesus made it clear that sometimes God's priorities are not our priorities. He said that he came to preach the gospel, not to heal. In other words, he came to renew all things. Healing was a part of that. But things that were bigger than just disease. We see that priority actually in today's text that Bill just read. Jesus continued to heal. And in the last verse of Mark chapter 1, take a look at the last verse in Mark chapter 1. The crowds were so great that, quote, Jesus could no longer publicly enter a city, but stayed out in the unpopulated areas. They were coming to him from everywhere. And then we enter Mark chapter 2. How much time has passed? We don't know between Mark 1 and Mark chapter 2. But chapter 2 opens with Jesus back. He's back in Capernaum. The miracle worker is back and expectations are high. And before we get into our, expect, our, our, our text, I want to be a little bit more precise about what we mean by the word miracle. We're about to see two, possibly three miracles in our text. Um, sometimes people use the word miracle to refer to something others would say is just a, an unexpected positive outcome. I won the lottery. It's a miracle. Well, no, it's unlikely, but it's more likely that someone would win it than that no one would win it. So that's not really a miracle. Or we use the word miracle of a providential outcome uh, that uh, is, is, we just see a hand behind it. Or as others would say, it's just an amazing coincidence. Uh, when our daughter, Beth, was uh, looking for a job after she graduated from college, she was going to be a teacher. Her ideal dream job was at a school in Knoxville. She applied, and she never heard from them. There was this other school that was pursuing her in Delaware. Yeah, Delaware. So, Knoxville, Delaware. I'm a dad. Uh, at any rate, she never heard from the school in Knoxville, so she accepted the contract from the school in Delaware, and the very next day, she heard from the school in Knoxville, she had written down, we had just moved, she had written down the wrong telephone number by one digit. They'd been trying to get in touch with her. They wanted her to come and teach in Knoxville. And Beth said, Dad, I mean, I'm her dad. You know, honey, it's just been one day. It's okay. <laughs> Beth said, Dad, I gave my word. And she went to Delaware. And there in Delaware, she, there was a young man who was from Arizona, who was co-opting in Pennsylvania, whose kids were in a choir in Delaware, and he took him to a Christmas concert, and there he saw his future wife, my daughter. And we look at that, and we see God's providence at work. But, you know, it's really not... It's a, it, it, we believe God guided the whole thing, but it's not a biblical miracle, not in that sense. 
Sometimes people use the term miracle of just an, just an amazing, awesome, awe-inspiring event like a, a sunset or the birth of a baby. Now, Jesus' birth was a miracle, but not normal births. Christians are not immune to misunderstanding the term or misascribing the term. Uh, years ago, there was a book called Like a Mighty Wind that chronicled a revival on an island of Timor in Indonesia, specifically because many people on that island had been raised from the dead as a part of this revival. Well, I had a professor over there at that time, and he met with the people who had been raised from the dead and, and was, was told, yes, they were raised from the dead. When he asked about it further, they explained, yes, they were dead, but they weren't dead, dead. And he what what do you mean? Well, in their language, the word dead is an umbrella term that refers to really sick and dead, dead. So they said we weren't dead, dead. But anyway, now, that doesn't mean God wasn't working, but it was definitely a miscommunication or a misapplication, perhaps. So let's be clear. God can work miracles. God does work miracles. But biblically, a miracle is something outside the scope of the natural laws that God has set up that occurs by the special intervention of God. And miracles teach truth and authenticate truth claims. They teach truth and authenticate truth claims. God's stamp of approval on that which has been taught. Jesus' miracles authenticated Jesus' claims about himself. So here we are now. The miracle worker is back in Capernaum in Acts in Mark chapter 2. And this chapter begins with a section uh, where Jesus starts to come into conflict over and over again with the Jewish authorities, mainly the scribes and, and the Pharisees. This, there's, there are going to be five times through uh, Mark chapter 2 and on into Mark chapter 3, five times that Jesus butts heads with the Jewish authorities. His authority versus their authority. And here's how that ends. Listen to chapter 3, verse, two, verse 6. The, the Pharisees went out and immediately began conspiring with the Herodians, and that was a, a Jewish group, but they were not natural allies with the Pharisees. They conspired with the Herodians, their, their enemy, Jesus, was greater than their, their antipathy towards each other. They conspired with the Herodians against him as to how they might destroy him. Now, what about his miracles? Well, their strategy is in verse 22 of chapter 3. They're going to claim he's in league with the devil. That's their plan. That's the movie trailer for what's coming. But for today, Jesus is back in Capernaum. The miracle worker is here. And you remember in chapter 1, verse 22, he was teaching them as one having authority, not like the scribes. Well, the scribes and Pharisees today in this house have front row seats for what they're about to see because Jesus was definitely on their radar. What, what kind of threat did he pose? What are they going to do about it? So verse 1, he had come back to Capernaum several days afterward. It was heard that Capernaum social network, it was heard that he was at home. Now at home, Jesus from, was from Nazareth, right? Um, so wh when he was at home, was, was Mark wrong here? No. Mark mentions five times Jesus was from Nazareth. He, he, was, he was not confused about that. But Matthew tells us that Jesus moved his base of operations 
uh, in Galilee over to Capernaum. So in this sense, he established the base of operations there. At the same time, the Son of Man has no place to, to lay his head. He didn't buy a house in Capernaum. Here's what I'm going to suggest to you, that the at home that we're referring to is Peter's home. Especially if, as we mentioned earlier, Peter is behind the Gospel of Mark. The phrase at home makes perfect sense. So that, that is what I believe to be the case here. He was at home, uh, really at Peter's home. And many were gathered there so that there was no longer room, not even near the door, and he was speaking the word to them. So, Jesus is teaching. He hasn't done any miracles yet. He's in Peter's home. It's packed. Outside, people are trying to get in. There are no fire marshals to ensure access to uh, the front or egress. Uh, they're trying to maintain, there's nobody there trying to maintain crowd control. Everybody wants to see miracles. But because the scribes and the Pharisees are there, I suspect that there are also there are some there who want to see some fireworks. Uh, and, and then, so that's the scene. And then suddenly, all of a sudden, these dirt particles start coming down. They're sitting there and all this dirt, and it's more dirt and more dirt that starts coming down. We, what's going on? Well, verse 3 tells us, they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. Being unable to get to him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had dug an opening, notice the word dug, they had dug an opening, they let down the pallet on which the paralytic was lying. Oh, there's so much packed into envisioning what that was like. If you can imagine the scenario. This man, he was well known in Capernaum apparently, he had not been there the last time Jesus was healing. Maybe his friends had no strategy to get him in front of Jesus, but they've got a plan now. What, question, why don't they wait until later for a more opportune time? Answer, last time Jesus left town like that. So they don't know if there's going to be a more opportune time. They've got a plan. So they removed the roof above him. Verse 4 says, literally the Greek text says they unroofed the roof. <laughs> now, do not picture a modern house with a sloped roof. Uh, the houses in, in the, those days, and really even today as well, uh, the poorer houses, but the houses were one story, and they had flat roofs. They had outside staircases because the houses retained the heat, and in and when, whenever there was a breeze, they could go up those outside staircases and take the cool of the breeze on the roof. So the roof was another living space for the people, and they would have taken these, this man up those stairs to the top of the roof. That's how they would have gotten there. Now, what is the roof like? Most of them were built like this. There were, there were large beams, but they were about three feet apart. And on top of those beams, they would put... Uh, they would make a, a thatch uh, there. They, they would put together the thatch and pack it with hard mud. And then on top of that, they would put ceramic tiles or tiles. And the Greek word for ceramics comes from this word for tiles that, that Luke mentions. So they've got the, dirt, the beams and then the dirt thatch packed in densely. And then on top of that are the tiles. The tiles can be removed easily and can be put back easily. The thatch... 
packed with mud and dirt, not so much. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I would imagine that uh, Peter and his wife and his mother-in-law would tell you, yeah, that's a, that's a problem. So here's, here's this, this, this opening that is, that is happening uh, there. They just dug this hole through the thatch. The reason I'm, and I'm blaming this, I guess, is because of my own experience um, with, uh, well, when Betsy and I, um, in 1980, we bought our, our house in Dayton, and we lived in that house for 20 years. We raised our children there, and that house itself was built in 1880. And it was 40 feet away from the second busiest north-south railroad double track. And that house... Um, uh, had no insulation in the walls, and uh, it was an old farmhouse, and it rattled a lot. Uh, every, almost every year, Betsy and I would remodel one room. And remodeling those rooms involved taking off the plaster and lath, okay, and exposing the two-by-fours, and then putting insulation in, and, and then putting drywall on top of that. However, <laughs> the plaster and lath was how they squared up those rooms. Because when we took everything off and there were the two-by-fours, by the way, the two-by-fours, everything involved old construction. The two-by-fours were literally two-by-four. Imagine that. Two inches by four, literally. But the downside of it is that they were a little bowed at times. and didn't, you know, They weren't perfectly straight. So the way that the room would be squared up was all the lath would be put on the plaster. That was just an art. They would, they would square up the room that way. So that when Betsy and I took that off, and by the way, Betsy is a master plaster artist. At any rate, when, when they would take that off, when we would take that off and put in insulation, and we couldn't put drywall back up because it would just be bowed from the old, so we had to you know, pop that line and get a sawzall and square up. It was, okay, here, here's what I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of getting back into reminiscing here. But here's the thing. Every room, every time, everything that we did involved dirt and dust and dead animals and dust and dirt. And... Um, dust you know you I, I can just envision what this is like as they dug through the roof so what fall what falls when you unroof a roof of packed mud well we know don't we it's everywhere it gets in the hair gets in the beard gets in the clothes and then you're looking up and then all of a sudden light streams in and there on the other side of that, uh, of that opening are four dirty faces looking down, and you're looking up, and you're <laughs> spitting out dirt, you know, that kind of thing. And there, this is just my imagination, but there sit the scribes and the Pharisees. Now, you remember elsewhere we read that they want the front seats? I just kind of like to think that they got most of it, <laughs> of the dust and dirt. That's me and my flesh. Uh, but truth is, there was just nothing about being around Jesus. Nothing about being around, anywhere around Jesus, in any way, shape, or form, that was boring. So apparently everybody just sat there. 
wiping their eyes, looking at Jesus, who knows exactly what's going to come. And uh, what I want us to do for a moment uh, is let the dust settle. Yeah, I know, bad joke. Uh, and, and look at the main characters. First of all, look at the paralytic. What was the, if, as you consider this man, what was his life like? What would it be, feel like to be him day after day to depend upon other people to feed you, to put clothes on you, to clean you when you needed to be cleaned? You get the picture. I, I, it's just a hard life. And people in those days, with this condition, didn't live long for multiple reasons, with all kinds of inflammations and, and infections and possibilities. And, uh, so I'm going to speculate something. and I, I, It is speculation, but I'm going to speculate that this condition was not from birth, but was the result of an accident. We don't know this, but it may also explain why he has this network of friends. Now, regardless of that, whether that speculation is accurate or not, if you think about the plan, about what they're about to do, this man had to agree to be let down in front of Jesus. He had to agree to it. A rope could break. Four ropes, one of them could break. Or somehow the pallet would, could become unbalanced and, and tip over. There's no dress rehearsal for this for the friends. If the pallet tips over, who gets hurt? I mean, he can't even curl into a ball to protect himself or put his hands up to protect his head or his face. Now, if, he's fall, if he falls, he's toast. So what I'm suggesting to you is he is all in on this. Now, we've looked at him. Let's look at his friends for a moment. Like a paralytic, no names are given, no words are spoken. Here's what we know about them. We can infer, number one, that they cared deeply about this man, their friend. And their friend could do nothing for them in return. And that's the definition of selfless love. They cared deeply about him. He could do nothing for them in return. Secondly, they had extraordinary faith in Jesus. I think we would call it even inventive faith in Jesus, ex expecting what he might possibly do. So... I think that the truth is that they knew that apart from Jesus, they had no other place to go. So, if they were wrong about Jesus, maybe Jesus would look stupid, but they would definitely look stupid after doing this trick. So, these men, I would suggest to you, are just wonderful friends. Wouldn't you like to have friends like this? So they lower their friend. All eyes have been on the roof. Now all eyes have been on the paralytic, the man being lowered. And now all eyes are on Jesus. What's he going to do? What will he do? Will he heal this man? Peter may be hoping he would heal the roof. What will he, how will he respond to this man? Will he uh, rebuke them for making a mess? Will he uh, rebuke the man for interrupting his teaching? The scribes and Pharisees are, in, are speculating on different outcomes than anybody else is. But whoever's doing the speculating, everybody is wrong. Everybody. Jesus does something that no one expects. Here, what's the first word that this man hears from Jesus? It's a term of endearment. Son, child. 
And then Jesus performs miracle number one. My son, your sins are forgiven. And in the Greek, it's emphatic. Forgiven are your sins. I need to park on this for a moment. The verse tells us, verse 5 tells us, that Jesus, seeing their faith, whose faith? Not just the man, it's plural, their faith. But not only the four friends, because you cannot generate saving faith, which is what forgiveness is, for someone else. Remember in Romans chapter 11, Paul wished he could transfer his faith to the nation of Israel. But that's just not how God works. Nowhere does God forgive apart from personal faith. Lewis made a, an excellent point um, that, the, the great, that greater than the physical miracle of healing is the spiritual miracle of salvation. I mean, the miracle of, for example, Lazarus' resurrection was temporary in duration. Eventually, Lazarus died. Every person Jesus raised from the dead eventually died again. But the effects of salvation, bringing spiritual death into spiritual life, the effects of that miracle are eternal. And that's why Jesus came, to pay the penalty for our sins. Later in Mark's Gospel, chapter 10, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. And then later on, in chapter 14 of Mark, while they were eating, he took some bread, and after a blessing, he broke it, and he gave it to them, and he said, take it, this is my body. When he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, and they, drank all, they all drank from it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the new covenant. It's poured out for many. So get this. The one who pronounces forgiveness, the one who is forgiving, is the one who will provide the forgiveness. And he is the one against whom the offense exists because he is God. Question. Do you think the man lay there disappointed not to hear at the very first my son, your body is healed. Some have actually argued that the paralytic was really there for forgiveness, not for healing, and he would have been carried home happy having been forgiven without healing. Um, Jesus gave him the greatest gift, which is forgiveness. So that's what he really wanted. That's what he really came for. Well, when I was a little boy, um, just before Christmas one year, my parents had our house wired for telephones in the, in the bedrooms. And uh, this was a new thing. Um, we didn't know. They, they had it wired while we were at school. So my sister, who was five years older than I, Irene, uh, and I did not know. And we, you, know, you don't always go scouring the baseboards in your home to see if there's a change when you get home from school. We never noticed. So these, uh, our, our, it was near Christmas time. Now, we, we kind of had a, a, a pattern every year. We would open Christmas presents, and then after the presents were opened, our parents would go out into the, another room 
and get one more present. And it was usually a big one. So after presents were open, week and a half or so later, um, after the phones had been installed, uh, the lines, after, after that, our, our parents went out of the room. Irene and I looked at each other. This is the fun part. And they came back with two differently shaped boxes. They gave one to Irene. They gave one to me. Mine was heavy. Her box was about this size, and she opened it up first, and she got a telephone. My 16-year-old sister, and I think that probably had what, was, yeah, I think those, her age was related to the need because she, that, her sweet head had that indentation from the phone of our phone that was in the kitchen. So my sweet sister opened up a telephone. She was giddy. She was squealing. She was so excited. And I'm thinking, my box is square and flat and heavier. If she got a telephone, what am I getting? And I opened it up, and it was a telephone book. And um, apparently, the look on my face became a family joke for decades. And then my dad went out and got two more packages, and this time she got the book. So, but they really enjoyed that. <laughs> you know, I was, yeah, I was 11. So when Jesus, the miracle worker, said, Son, your sins are forgiven, if you could freeze frame that moment, was the man thinking he'd just gotten the telephone book? Um, thank you. Were his friends on the roof looking down, listening to what Jesus said, hearing him say his sins are forgiven, giving each other high fives? That's what we're talking about. We came for something temporal. We got something eternal. That's why we're here. I don't, I don't think anybody had time to process this. <laughs> to, you know, but maybe if that was all Jesus did for the man, like Johnny Erickson Tata, who's had a long ministry of decades, maybe he would come to embrace that while healing was his felt need, forgiveness was his greater need, the greatest need. There's a difference between what we need and what we want. And God knows that difference. Sometimes, 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 Jesus says, my child, I'm answering your prayer. No, my grace is sufficient for you. Sometimes he does. Now, I will argue with you, suggest to you rather, that decades later, I want you to think about this, because this is where you come into the story, and I do. Decades later, when this, when this man, when his healed body deteriorated, and he was near death, I am sure his joy was not the added intervening years of physical activity, but rather his joy was that he had looked into God's face and heard God utter the words, Son, your sins are forgiven. What a moment. 
Okay. Well, we've looked at the paralytic, we've looked at his friends, we've looked at Jesus, and now I want you to take a look at the steam that's curling out of the ears of the Pharisees and scribes. Uh, You could just cut the resentment in that room with a knife. What kind of authority is Jesus claiming? Well, Adam's sin resulted in a fallen humanity, a fallen cosmos. Romans 5 says, through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin. So death spread to all men because all sinned. In Romans 8, we read how the creation is groaning until the, the release that God gives when all things are put right, when all things will be healed. All suffering is ultimately, ultimately anchored in sin. Our separation from God and our alienation from a fallen creation, which includes disease, natural disasters, devastations, and conditions like... Um, paralysis at this point instead of healing the man jesus is claiming the spiritual authority to reverse the cosmic effects of sin that's astonishing jesus is saying i have i myself have the authority to say where you are going to spend eternity that is what he's saying to the man and here for the first time in the gospel of mark We've got the theological watchdogs sniffing Jesus' teaching right here in the front row. Luke tells us that they came from as far away as Jerusalem for this. If you think about that, that's the top of the Dead Sea, across the Jordan River, on up to the bottom of the Sea of Galilee and across, and then up to the top of the Sea of Galilee where Capernaum is. It is 170 miles. So they are concerned about Jesus. Verse 6 begins with the word, but, which draws a contrast between them and everybody else present, but some of the scribes were sitting there, reasoning in their hearts, why does this man speak that way? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Bingo. They got it. 25 points. Jesus is not claiming just to be a good moral teacher. He is ascribing one of the attributes of God to himself. And he not only declares the man forgiven, He claims to be the one doing the forgiving. C.S. Lewis put it well, very very familiar quote, listen up. Jesus told people that their sins were forgiven and never waited to consult all the other people whom their sins had undoubtedly injured. He unhesitatingly behaved as if he he were the party chiefly concerned, the person chiefly offended in all offenses. This makes sense only if he really was God whose laws are broken and whose love is wounded in every sin. Otherwise, Jesus' decree of the man's forgiveness is, well, blasphemy. Verse 8 tells us, Immediately Jesus, aware in his spirit, they were reasoning that way in their hearts, that way within themselves, said to them, Why are you reasoning about these things in your hearts? And you know what? If the scribes and Pharisees weren't already having a bad enough, terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day, now Jesus lets them know he can read their minds. If you think about it, this is actually another miracle. We'll call it miracle 1.5. Because only God can do this. The God who forgives sin also knows what his his creatures are thinking. So, He reveals himself to be the one who knows what they're thinking. 
they've now got an, another issue to face. How does the heart of man respond to the truth of God's revelation about the heart of man? Well, we know the answer. The conflict escalates. But Jesus doesn't quite give up on them. The master of logic, he's a logos, right? The master of logic keeps probing. He moves from the disclosure of what they're thinking to this question. Which truth claim is easier to lie about? One is not verifiable, the other is. Verse 9, which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, pick up your pallet, and walk? Now remember, so far, they have seen nothing. There's been no visible miracle that people have seen. Zero. Zilch. Nada. They haven't seen the sins that were piled up on the paralytic soul, and they didn't see those sins vanish from his soul. They saw nothing. So we're going to move from miracle 1 to miracle 1.5 to miracle number 2. Verse 10, so that you, and he's talking to the scribes and Pharisees, so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And he, he uses, I'm going to pause here, Jesus uses his favorite title for himself for the first time here, Mark, the Son of Man. It's a messianic title from Daniel 7, and we'll look at that another day. It definitely adds to their charge of blasphemy. But for now, Jesus turns away from the scribes and Pharisees so that you may know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He turns back to the paralytic in verse 11. I say to you, and get that, I say to you. He's not asking God the Father. He's declaring his own authority. I say to you, get up, pick up your pallet, go home. My guess is it got very quiet in there for a moment. Every eye turns from Jesus to the guy laying there, the paralytic on the ground. Three short imperatives in the Greek text. All of them, impossible. He can't use his stomach muscles to sit up. He can't use his arms to pick up the pallet. He can't move his legs to walk. Only he can. Those three short imperatives are matched by three short acts of obedience. Verse, 20, verse 12 says he got up immediately picked up his pallet and went out of the sight of everyone, in the sight of everyone, right through the crowd. All eyes would have swiveled back to Jesus. You know that would have happened. They're wondering, who is this man? Who? He can forgive sins because he's not only claimed it, he's just proved it. So what's the response? Verse 12 concludes, they were all amazed and were glorifying God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. They don't glorify God over the claim to forgive, but over what they now know to be the proof of that claim. How do you glorify God? One wonderful theologian wrote, men glorify God not by increasing his glory, that is impossible, but by recognizing his glorious attributes and acknowledging them as belonging to God. Here you acknowledge that the authority to forgive sins is in Jesus who is God. Who is glorifying God? Is the word all totally inclusive? No. 
It means all of the multitude, not the scribes and the Pharisees. Mark makes that clear in the context from the next chapters. Their hearts are hardened against Jesus. They, they show indifference to the paralyzed man. They show annoyance, perhaps, to his friends. And they definitely show criticism against Jesus. If you'll allow me a little latitude, they didn't come to be fed from his teaching, but to criticize the sermon. They don't want to be challenged. They want to be agreed with. The truth of the matter is, they are the spiritual paralytics in this story. There are so many things that can be said about this study, and we, we could just dive into it for weeks. Uh, Son of Man studies, all, all kinds of other things that we could look at. It's just, and we'll be tracking back and forth with some of those things uh, because God's pattern is unfolding in a wonderful way in this picture of who Jesus is in Mark. But I'm going to close with three observations. All three have to do with our greatest need. Our greatest need is forgiveness. So let's talk about that. First of all, look at Jesus. When you think about this story, I want you to consider this. And this is, and please hear me, hear me. This is the most important thing I will say today. To heal this man's paralysis costs Jesus a few words. To forgive this man's sin cost Jesus his life on the cross. I want you to take that home with you and think about that. What wondrous love is this, oh my soul. To heal his paralysis, a few words, to forgive his sins, cost his life on the cross. Secondly, I want you to look at those who receive healing. Those of us who are on the receiving end of forgiveness and healing from Jesus. Jesus does not heal people who are full of themselves. He gives grace to those who are empty and know it. Like the leper last week. It's people who know they are unclean who receive grace. Who receive his touch. Not those who say, Lord... I know I am 50% unclean. Please heal my 50%. No. One of the greatest problems in our culture today is that with all the things that people shout out about regarding self-esteem and self-promotion, we cannot accept that we are not acceptable. That's why the gospel is such an offense to many. The person who receives the grace of forgiveness is the person who says with Peter, do you remember later Peter will say this, depart from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. It's better that you stay away. I have so much regard for you, and I have so much awareness of my own soul. Better for you to stay away from my slime than for you to get any of me on you. And you know what Jesus does? <laughs> he pulls in and absorbs that sin into himself. That is his touch of forgiveness. One more unclean sinner pulled into Jesus' arms. And that's me, buddy. That's you. It's all of us. If you acknowledge your sin before God and, and receive the forgiveness that Jesus Christ offers by grace through faith, he wants us to revel in forgiveness 
And if any of you are not sure of that, I'd love to talk with you. If you're not sure that you have that relationship with Jesus Christ of forgiveness, having been saved by grace through faith, I'd love to talk with you. Lewis would, any of us would after the service. Just let us know. I'd love to talk to you about that. But all of us, like the paralytic, when we believe in Jesus Christ, we are on the receiving end of having Jesus say to us, child, your sins are forgiven. We have the same promise that this man had through faith in Christ. And then here's my final point. Last week, Lewis closed with a a very interesting probing question, and it kind of nudges us from thinking about salvation, which is what forgiveness is, to the question of what to do with our salvation. And Lewis's question was, how crazy would it be if the leper put back on his old vile clothes, started shielding his face again, and once more started walking around shouting, unclean, unclean. Well, let's apply the same question. How crazy would it be for the paralytic to lay back down on his pallet, do nothing, and let himself atrophy back into paralysis? No. Once you are forgiven, you are to walk with, as we studied before, follow Jesus, walk with Jesus. It's an active growth. And you will have spiritual setbacks. Please believe me. I do. You do. We all do. We will have spiritual setbacks. So what, do you, what happens then? Do you give up? Do you say, I'm just done with the Christian life? It's too hard. Well, it is hard. Jesus didn't say, deny yourself, take up your cross, uh, take up your pillow and follow me. He said, take up your cross and follow me. Don't allow the fact that you struggle with the sins of the flesh still render you spiritually paralyzed. You are forgiven. You're perfect. You're forgiven. There's therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And forgiveness is your greatest need, and it's my greatest need. Jesus paid it all right? Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you that Jesus did indeed pay it all. We owe everything to him. We thank you that he washed that crimson stain white as snow. And Lord, I pray that everybody who hears these words, who sees the forgiveness that God offers, would embrace the truth of the gospel, that God became flesh, died in our place for our sins, and we receive that free gift with empty hands, by grace through faith in Jesus. Thank you, Father, for that wonderful gift. In Jesus' name I ask these things.